Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Hugo Winning Starship Sofa podcast. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to another little special on the Hugos. Incorporating a part of the show as well, but we're having a, number, a couple of things on the Hugo Awards. And yes, <laughs> apologies if anyone was listening to that last recording where we actually won the recording and you're still going to the doctors now for eardrum explosions. Wow, did I get excited? Did anybody see? Has anybody actually seen the video of that? Oh, that's so... <laughs> 41 minutes into it. The captain of the ship loses all control. There's tears and everything. I'm jumping around. You've got to watch it. It's on the front of the website or just go on to the Ustream as well. I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. We have an interview with the man who picked up that Hugo Ward, Grant Stone. Just me and Grant chewing the fat, really, of what went on over there. Then we have a little song, Tau City Radio, by David Bradshaw. David Bradshaw? That's Mr. Bradshaw, Mrs. Bradshaw. You know Robin Bradshaw? This is the husband. David's done a song before for us, but he's done this one. And this was actually going to be sent over to D, And Dee's going to incorporate in the, the video for the, the book, the volume two, Starship Sova Stories. So David sent this story in. Sent the story, sent this audio in, and there's a little outro as well by David, so look out for that. Then we have another little fact article. This is Cheryl Morgan straight after the kind of, this is the party after the Hugo Awards were presented. Cheryl's going around there just bumping into people and saying hello and has a little chat with Grant as well. Then we're going to kind of slip back into normal Starship Silver mode. And we've got some fiction by Alan Steele, this side of Jordan. Fantastic science fiction writer Alan Steele. Then finally, we have a fact article by none other than John Joseph Adams. His Living Dead 2 anthology is out. And John's going to talk all about Living Dead 2 and give you kind of a little in-depth what else is out there in kind of zombie land. Because, by God, I hate zombies, but John seems to revel in them. So listen out for that. That is show number 153, the Hugo Special. <laughs> We have <laughs> the man himself, the guy that stood up there on that podium, Grant Stone. Grant, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? Um, well, I'm over the in moon. You know what I mean? It's just... What I, I tell you, what I haven't seen as well. I don't know if there's anything out there of a video of you going up to get it. Do you know there is a one of the, the graphic novel up there, or the graphic story or something? But there's nothing 
as yet of you accepting it on YouTube. I would love to see that little bit of it, but bloody hell. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I've been away from computers most of the time, apart from the iPod, so I'm sort of only just now catching up. Well, um, it go, could be. I, I don't know. Go on, Grant. Tell us, just close your eyes and tell us the experience. Oh, where do I begin? Um, I don't know. It was, it was kind of surreal. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there and, and George R. R. Martin is like two rows in front and Kim Stanley Robinson's just over from him and Robert Silverberg's just there. And it's, it was just mad. And I was just sitting there in the middle of it all. <laughs> what, um, what was it like? Was it, was it n- nervous for you? Was it? Cause I would have been honestly far. It, yeah, it kind of was. And, um, you know, I was kind of nervous the whole day, and that's why I, I went up there with a um, with the speech on the iPod because I thought, well, if everything goes pear shaped, I can just read that, and uh, and then I'll be good. Um, but yeah, then it was over too quick, and I was sitting back down, and I um, sort of got off the stage and um, walked back around, and uh, and Corey Doctor grabbed me and gave me a big thumbs up. Did he? And I was walking back to the seat. Yeah. <laughs> So do you actually go up there and you you, you come away with the, the actual the thing that yeah, you go? You do. And they're heavy. They're <laughs> really heavy, as you'll find out. <laughs> so what that that means then you must have just the the rest of the night, you must have just had to kind of sit with this thing, did you? Or? Yeah, but it was good because after that was over, I mean whether you won or not, I figured, well, after that, then I can just relax. And, uh, and I kind of did. It was great. You know, that's the, the funny thing, because I actually like, commentated on the show, just, you know, watching Merle Lafferty and, and um, Cheryl do the kind of con reporter. And that one actually, you know, my section got out the way straight away. And, you know, eventually my heart kind of came back down. And that was the thing. I could just relax and then enjoy it for what it is. You know what I mean? And and enjoy who else was winning. Do you know what I mean? And I actually, you know, if I'd put money on it, Grandy, I would have been a rich man because there was a number of them ones this year. Because normally I'm the kiss of death, and everything I pick bloody doesn't win. But yeah, norm, you know. But this time, bloody hell, it was a cracking result. I thought. Yeah, I thought it was really, really good. Did um, tell us about this Hugo then, because I want to know about this figure. How big's it? <laughs> have you got it on your mind, Hugo? <laughs> Um, actually, I've, I've got it sitting on my desk here, right next to a Julius Vogel Award, and I can tell you that it's twice as large as a Julius Vogel Award and about five times as heavy. Is it's it? a monster. Wow, yeah. man, that's unreal. Got to get it shipped from New Zealand, because you were trying, weren't you, to kind of get it shipped. Does it come in a box? <laughs> um, it doesn't come in a box. The, the best advice I've had is to get the rocket part and put that in a tube and then send the rest of it sort of separately, because I, I thought there would be a place where I could give it back and they'd mail it. But I think by the time I got back to the convention, they'd already shut that down. Right. Um, so then I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll bring it back here. And then I thought, well, how's that going to go on the luggage? Because it is a giant rocket. <laughs> and and some people were kind of a bit, well, you shouldn't put this on, on an airline at all because people will freak out. So what I did is I took a picture of me holding it at the hotel. And I had that on, on my phone. And then we packed it all up in the suitcase and we checked it in and I said, oh, by the way, uh, there's this thing in there. So, don't get scared when it goes through the x-ray and i showed them a picture and the guy at the airport um 
took my phone and then he took it and showed it to like two or three other guys. <laughs> and they were all going, ooh, very nice. <laughs> and they came back and said, yeah, that's fine. And um, yeah, it went through the x-ray in Australia and the x-ray in New Zealand and nobody seemed to care. It was great. That's, it's, well, I mean, this must happen quite often because like every year, this, you know, that kind of shape, you know, like <laughs> bomb looking shape missile thing has to go through some, some people have to get it back to them, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, the, the one person I was worried about was, uh, was Peter Watts because, well, you know how much luck he has <gasps> with, with customs. Right. I never thought about and, that. We've just given him a giant rocket in his um, in his luggage. So, <laughs> sorry, Peter, if that um, causes trouble. Hopefully, he's mailed it. That's, I never thought about that. I, you know, it was funny, Grant. Honestly, because when it when the announcement came, and literally talking like seconds later, was, the emails were dropping in. Peter must have been like in the audience there with his phone because I got an email off him straight away, you know. Saying, like, oh, yeah, congr- he said he did that. Aye, congratulations. I, I wish, you know what I mean? It would have been so nice to be there, but it's just so freaking expensive, man, just to get, you know what I mean? I'd, I'd have to bring probably wife and kids with, with me, yeah. you know what I mean? I, I kind of I come with baggage. <laughs> Good well, that's kind of, kind of what we did. I mean, Liz came over with me, we left the kids here. But Liz was over, and she didn't go to the the convention at all. She was just um, shopping and catching up with friends and things. But then she did come to the ceremony, right? And sort of all all the way along, I'd been sort of getting all excited about this. And and she was she doesn't read a lot of science fiction, and she thought, oh, yeah, it'll be okay. And then you get there, and it was absolutely incredible. <laughs> it was just remarkable. I mean, if you look on the the YouTube one, there is like a there is like the open ceremony, and there is like that kind of the graphic story one. It's a big spot, and it looks, you know, Oscar level. Do you know what I mean? It, this is the Oscars for for science fiction. It is an impressive, you know, and you had to get up there. Wow, your heart must have been beating like a fucking <laughs> drum, Grant. Yeah, it kind of was a bit. So, um, but yeah, it's just incredible to be there. What um, what was happening beforehand? Do you have like a, a place to have a chat and drinks or anything like that? Is there a, a pre Hugo bash or something like that? Or yeah, there was there was a um, a cocktail party sort of a thing, and that's where they unveiled the the base for the first time. Nobody had seen it. So tell us about the, it. So this rocket bit, the actual rocket bit, that's the same. That's always the same, is it? And it's the base that changes. Yeah, and the base is they get a local artist and they try and put some some localized stuff on it. So this has got lots of Australian. Um, actually, there's probably a video on YouTube already that gives you all the details of exactly what's on there. But yeah, it looks really great. And you actually just you un- the rocket comes off. <laughs> yeah, it, it unscrews and uh, yeah. <laughs> Wow, to have one of them, eh? Bloody starship so far. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's like everyone that's won it. For, you know what I mean? It's just like like Amy and Jim and everyone that's kind of hell. It's not just bloody me. You know, there's, I've had so many. Honestly, like on Twitter has been jumping on Twitter the response and Facebook, and it's just. I, I wish I could just you know. I, be, I keep saying it's everyone. It's everyone that's kind of won this. But wow, did yeah. Well, you're actually a, a pretty major celebrity. I mean, everywhere I went, everyone's like, say hi to Tony for me. There was just, I couldn't remember everyone. There's just, everybody was. It's, it's, you know what, that's the funny thing is, you know, you, you kind of, I guess people will, will know us now, but if I, if I came with my wife, you know, it's a bit like your wife, Liz, you know, 
Manly doesn't one bit really kind of get into science fiction. You know, even when I kind of said, oh, I've, I've won this award. All right, right. Don't forget the kids have got the school lunches tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. exactly like that. And then if we went to a convention, I don't know what Melanie, you know, people coming up and saying, oh, you're right, Tone. I don't know what you, you know, especially like an award thing like that. Yeah. Well, the cool thing was, I mean, Liz doesn't read a lot of it, but she reads George R. R. Martin, really, really likes his stuff. And so he's there just two rows in front. And so after the awards, they call everyone up on stage for um, for the m- more photos. And he accepted for uh, Frederick Pohl. That's right, yes. So I make sure I'm standing like right next to him. And I could see Liz in the crowd just going, <laughs> oh, that's <was> really funny. <laughs> so, because I've, I've never seen, is that photograph up yet anywhere, is it? Or I don't know. I haven't looked yet. Um, it's bound to be. I've started to see a few Flickr sets pop up on Twitter, but I haven't really looked seriously yet. I never thought about Flickr as well. Did you take any photographs then? Because I'm, I'm sure I read on your Twitter thing that you, your, um, your camera's broke or something and you just had your mobile yeah. phone. Yeah, the camera broke just before we went away and the mobile phone is, is terrible. It's okay for blog stuff, but it was pretty awful, so I didn't take very many pictures at all. It's all up there, Grant, in your, in your head, do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's all in your mind, yeah. the memories. <laughs> yeah. It is quite, uh, do you know, it's bizarre just to think you've been up there and you've, getting it, like, or you've, you've been in that crowd and you've accepted a Hugo Award. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's, <laughs> I just don't know. It, it still doesn't really seem real. <laughs> I like, honestly, you sound dead calm as if, you know what I mean? It's probably, you know, maybe like a, a couple of hours later and you think, fucking hell, what <laughs> just this whirlwind we get. How, how long were you there for? Um, we were there for, we arrived on Wednesday, and then there was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and we've just come back today. Is that right? No, Tuesday. It was uh, It was seven days we were over there total. That's a long, that's, a, um, that's actually a long time for Liz then to go out shopping every day. <laughs> oh yeah, well she had, she had friends to catch up with and things, but we thought that, um, I mean I booked long before Starship Sofa was nominated, I thought well it's Melbourne, so... I can get there, so I just bought the the subscription to Worldcon, and then um, I wasn't sure if I was going to go by myself or what. And then we thought, well, if, if Liz comes too, then we both get a pretty good holiday. And yeah, it's, I don't even go back to work until next Monday. It's great. Wow! What you want to do then is honestly is, um, get a photo- get it on your mantelpiece and get some photographs there and get it on your blog. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So. What are you going to do then? Are you, is, is that how you're going to send it? You're going to attach that phallic-looking rocket and post that separately? I don't know. I'll go to the post office and see what they reckon is the best uh, best plan. Because, like you say, if it's heavy, I mean, you know what I mean, just um, we'll, we'll dip into the sofa coffers there and pay for it. Don't, uh, I don't want you bloody, because that'll cost one mean mother of a price to get it over. But I think that'll probably be the best bit of money Starship Sofa's laid out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I did think of, of bringing it to you because there's a chance that I might have to come to the UK for work. But I don't know how big of a chance and I don't know when it is yet. Like, if it was next month, I'd just, just bring the thing over to you. <laughs> But I, I I can't guarantee that, so I think I'll send it just in case. Yeah, we've been lushed. Um, 
to get you over here. <laughs> you know, so well, what, what's um, what's that for? Like a new new job? Oh no, the the same old job. But um, but yeah, it's possible that I might be required over there in a month or two. And if I do go over there, then I'll um, definitely be coming to see you. Yeah, Grant. Wow, what a what an experience. Eh? I just got still a bit kind of gobsmacked and mm. rather give it a give it a. A stroke there now, will you? <laughs> well, just in our <laughs> eyes, in our minds, kind of picture it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've you've really got to go to the next world con. It's um, where is it? Reno. Reno, yes. Who's um, which is not? Oh, I'll tell you who was. Um, you know what I mean? This is the kind of oh, it's all kind of fairyland for me. I was I did an interview with um, Connie Willis. You know the. Oh yeah, starships were interrogations, and and afterwards, do you know what I mean? It's just like, oh, it'll be lovely to see you. <laughs> it's like <laughs> this is Connie Willis. You know what I mean? Mind she yeah. was so into science fiction. You know when I kind of I'll play that one in a, in a couple of weeks or a couple of months' time. Just that, that's what you. I guess you need to be a science fiction writer. Still, this day, so excited about science fiction. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, amazing. I nearly was cheeky enough to ask about. <laughs> give us a story do you know what I mean now these some of these kind of bigger ones I might try and tap you know because I've never had yeah. a story off um, I only tried once no I don't even think I, oh I did uh, what do you call him uh, Baxter Stephen Baxter oh okay yeah but I know he's a bit kind of he wouldn't even let Escape Pod play a Hugo thing and they would have pay, paid for it you know what I mean so yeah but anyway yeah I, I, I was kicking myself this morning because I thought you know I should have at, at the big party afterwards, I should have gone up to George R. R. Martin and said, "Hey, can we have one of yours?" Yes, because at that point, with with both of us holding Hugo's, that would have been he, he couldn't have said no. But I, I just it completely slipped my mind. <laughs> yeah, that would be fantastic. <laughs> Tell us a bit more then about. Did you chat with any of the big writers? Did you have a a little nudge up with? Because I would have went straight over to Silverberg, me and give him a big hug because I've, I've recorded a. <laughs> um, and interrogations with him, and he was lovely, do you know? So Yeah. I, I talked to him a little bit. It was um, actually the first time I saw him was um, there was a session with him talking to Kim Stanley Robinson in the really big auditorium where the awards were. So I walked in and went right up to the front, and that day I was wearing my Starship Sofa T-shirt. Have you got one, have you? <laughs> yeah, which has got a big quote by Cory Doctorow right on the side of it. So I'm sitting there waiting for it to start, and – the whole row is pretty much empty, and who sits down right next to me but Corey Doctorow, <laughs> which was awesome. And and because I was sort of there, kind of on Starship Sofa business, I could sort of go and shake hands with him and talk to him, and it didn't sort of feel weird, even though I'm a huge fan of his stuff. It was sort of, well, it's not for me, it's for Starship Sofa, so I can talk to anyone who's sort of been on this show and... I mean, actually, Corey yeah. wrote, he even gave a, a link as well on, he's put a big post on Boing Boing, so we got mentioned on Boing as well, so. Oh, great. He's been he's been really kind, uh, he mentioned on Twitter and everything, so, yes. Yeah. So they, most but of them, else? I guess, most of them, I was going to say, most of them will be coming back home now. That, is that Worldcon now all kind of finished? Is it all packed up? It, and, it's all finished. Most of them are, are, are either going to New Zealand or they're heading back to um, to wherever they're from. Um, I was trying to find as many people that have been on the show to just sort of say hi to as possible. I th- think I got Peter Watts. Jay Lake I definitely spoke to. Um, oh, Jonathan Strahan. I had a good chat to Jonathan Strahan. All right. Yeah, and that was really good. Who else was Oh, just everybody. It was re- Alistair Reynolds. 
is an amazing guy to talk to. Yes, um, I met him in the, in the French science fiction, co- lovely guy as well, do you know what I mean? He, I was actually sitting yeah. in my lift ready to kind of go out and pack away and he phoned me more about it. He's coming down for an interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, uh, uh, Jitsi, Jitsi DeVry. Oh, it's funny, you know, I've, um, I've spoken to him a few times and I've never... Well, I've just got a, my daughter's first day back at school. I'm just wait on Grant. I'm just going to give her a big kiss and say bye. Sure. Say hello to everyone. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> right. Take care. Bye. First day back, and it's actually been pouring down with rain for all of them, you know. And oh, Reed went first thing, like the nine o'clock time. But Ellie's going a bit later. She's a bit older for some reason, going later, and it's just pouring down horrible weather. Ha! Oh. First day back <laughs> at school. So oh, yeah. tell us about Peter Watson. Is was he kind of because he, he emailed me and he says you know he's going there, but he certainly doesn't expect to win. But Peter was one of my, you know, I was I was rooting for him. And like you say, when when yeah. he won, it was just amazing. What what did it did it, was there a big cheer or anything when it went? When um, he won? Yeah, yeah, there really was, and and he was he had no idea. He was really surprised. Fun. But I think it's really well deserved as well. Well, hey, we played that story as well. I was quite, um, and I was, I was really chuffed because Bridesicle was there as well, and that one, and I yeah. was, and I, and I was rooting for that, you know. And that was a kind of double-edged sword because I really wanted Bridesicle to win, but then I wanted a couple of the Clark's World stories. I was thinking, you know, I like Clark's World. I'm chuffed a bit. Clark's World won the the actual award for best semi, you know, prosing because that's a yeah. tough little competition there now. But you know, they've kind of. Stuck the heads out and they're doing the Mason stuff. Who picked it up for Clark's World? Uh, Cheryl did. Right. Oh, yes. Well, why? Gus, why not? I believe she was um, fact editor, isn't she there? Yeah. And but did... you look at all of the, the novels and the novellas, the novelettes, the short stories, all of those were just stacked with so many incredibly good stories. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it's, um... And like I say, what do you think... Um... What was the reaction when it was a tie for the for the novel? I I think everyone just thought that is exactly perfect because mm-hmm. they're both really good books and yeah I I just couldn't think of any better result than that. It was when it, when because I was rooting for City in the City if it was going to be a winner but you know when that kind of came up you know I think everyone's a winner there and I'm I'm sure it's only been three times in the history that you know there's been like this tie. Yeah, for the Hugo. So, did you have a chat with China? I, was 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 he all right? No, or? no. I because I, even though I was there on official duty, there were some people I was just too terrified to talk to. Him and Kim Stanley Robinson, I just <laughs> couldn't talk to them. Well, actually, China's honestly. I mean, he was he's been a lovely guy, and like you say, he's even given a little piece to put in a new volume, Starship Sofas, and I've emailed. Yes, yeah, should have just went up, oh, man. Grandy man, just oh, here, yeah, man, here. Do you Which, know who I am? <laughs> what story did he give you? He, it, it's a piece from his, um, from his, like, ramblings oh, on a website. Because it, I wanted a story, and he said they're all, and he says he wish he'd kind of, he knows now, but he says they're all kind of tied up in copyright, and he just, he, it, they're not his to kind of give, give away no more. And he says he would just straight away. Then, so I left it for a bit, then I kind of email him back and says, Chinaman, just just write us something. Do you know what I mean? And then he said, "Well, do you want to have some of these? You know, anything?" And one of them he showed us was just like 
complete gobbledygook. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I sent it a D, and D went, well, you know, it's like China me ever, but you can, we'll just turn it down. But one of them was this waiting for, uh, watching God, which is just like ramblings as, again, you know, but he's he sent over like extras as well, and he sent like a picture of his laptop and a picture of what he did when he was, like, I think, five-year-old, a drone. Do you know what I mean? To go in the extras. Oh, wow. So he was, he was, he's been really nice, you know, so. But listen, you've won a bloody, or picked up a bloody Hugo Award for Starship Sofa. Wow. I'm chuffed to be. Yeah. That's what, <laughs> it we, is that's cool. what we're and here for. <laughs> yeah. Um, and of course you saw Garth Nix was doing the, the whole Master of Ceremonies. Yes. Well, doing we, it really well. We, because um, you tried to get a, see you should have went to him as well, because we'd be trying to get a, a story for him, of him for a while. Yeah, there, well, he, he did, he gave us permission to do one of the Heroewood and Fitz stories, but then he said, oh, it's, well, first he said, oh, I'll do it myself, and then he sort of said it's really long, and they are actually really long. They're, they're Kim Newman length. They're well, really developers. Well, that's what I want, mind you, Grant. That's it. That's because I've had loads of nice um, comments about doing run that serial. Everyone's itching for another serial, so I want yeah. something. Well, maybe you know, I'll... 20, 25k up to thirty k would be ideal. You know, and break it into like hour sections. Yeah, maybe I should mail them again because um, that actually, out of everybody I met, meeting Garth Nix was just the best because he's just my absolute hero. And so I was trying to be really cool, but. It was Garth Nix that I was standing next to. It was just amazing. <laughs> what was the the convention itself like? The, how it was run and and how it was you know organized? Was that okay? Yeah, it was. It was just huge. Um, I mean, I've only ever been to one convention before, and that was one here in Auckland, and it was well ten times as big as that. I think and, when when Cheryl just I'll jump in there when Cheryl did the the con reporter for the. The New Zealand one, I think it was only about six people watching it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but apparently the Wellington convention this year was really, really good. Um, I really wish I could have been there. But actually, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because I, I thought, well, I'm, I'm heading off overseas, so I can't go there. And two of the kids came down with horrible illnesses that weekend. So if I'd been off in Wellington and come back to having the kids sick all weekend, I suspect I might have perhaps not have come back at all. Might not have been that welcome. <laughs> hey, well, Grant, honestly, I kind of thank you enough for, for doing that. Do you know what I mean? It's, um, oh, it's been an absolute honour. I'll just take, take yourself so many photographs with it. Take it, put it to bed, take it to bed with you. <laughs> wow, honestly, Grant, thank you. I'll, um, I'll certainly keep in touch. Yeah. I will keep in touch until I get it on my desk. He hasn't, <laughs> yeah. Manly hasn't sent it yet, you know. Do you think he's going to send it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I've got to get downloading all the all the stuff I've missed. Look at all the video and the photos and <laughs> look at you on on the stream. <laughs> I'm so glad I actually recorded that, you know what I mean? Because it was just like a last-minute thing, I thought. Because the more that was getting nearer to the kind of show, you know, that I was thinking, I was going to do this kind of have guests on and, you know, and... I just couldn't, you know, in the end I was thinking, I can't bloody do it, I can't can do it, you know what I mean? <laughs> then I just kind of thought, oh, I'll do that, I'll do a little kind of Ustream. And then I realised you could record it, and I think there's been, a, 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 up to now, about 500, 600 people looked at it, watched that video, but it's, <laughs> uh, you, have you seen it, have you, when we kind of win? I haven't seen it yet, I'll, I'll watch it as soon as we're off the phone, I think. 41 minutes, that's... <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, because it's so funny because it just it looks like I'm kind of calm, but on the inside it was just banging away. Do you know what I mean? It just yeah, and then it just it just flashes up. You know what I mean? It kind of the uh, the nominees were up there, and then all of a sudden, you know, the next kind of insert on that con reporter the winner starship so and that's just like i just couldn't you know what i mean and what's what's really funny is i, I think i mentioned this i was recording it and and i must have gotten so excited i've knocked all my settings all the cock and it must have just blown people's eardrums you know and i haven't even put it out yet on the uh, enhanced feed but I'll have to put it yeah. out. Oh, it just went. It just sounded like I was a little girl screaming. <laughs> you know, there was a big, uh, big photo of you broadcast across everywhere. Yeah, I don't know what I heard. Uh, well, actually, one of the organisers, Kate, I forget her name now. She sent Astas. You know, you had to kind of send a picture over. So <laughs> obviously, I sent one like you know a couple of years ago when I was a couple of pounds lighter. <laughs> what was it? Just out last. Did what was it like when Starship so far? Was there anybody else there who was in the running, who was actually physically there? Yeah, there were a few. Um, I can't remember who it was because um, I had my my photo taken with them. But the whole thing is a big blur. I can't remember <laughs> giant chunks of it. <laughs> I hope there is somewhere on YouTube that's got it. You know, so we can kind of I can watch it. That would be because they were having yeah. a bit of trouble with the feed. You know, the, the, there was a video feed as well. But they were having a bit of trouble with yeah. that. But the actual the Conry one looks the con you know the introduction one looks l- lovely and clear. So I'm I'm hoping there is still some more to come out. Yeah, but well, there were plenty of people with smartphones and, and computers and things. So there's got to be something. Mm-hmm. Was it full? Was it that auditorium grand? Yeah, yeah. It was probably eighty percent full at least, and it was a really big auditorium. <sighs> and I don't know how many people watched it. Online, what um, what was it like getting up? Did it did it just kind of was it nerves? Were you, did, had you had a drink or anything? Or uh, a, a small one, but um, I, I didn't really trust myself to do that because it was a rehearsal um, in the afternoon. Really? So, <laughs> so I was just... sitting there for a while, and, and you know John Scalzi's up there in J Lake, and just everybody is just there, and I'm just sitting there <laughs> looking terrified. And they show you where to stand and where to walk and. And then after that, I thought, well, if I've got the thing on the iPod, I'll just get up there and read it and <laughs> not think about it too much. I was just trying not to think about it. Did you get a Did you get a clap when you you um, stepped down? I think so. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> One of the most important days in your life, then, in science fiction terms, and it's just gone all yeah. fuzzy grey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Grant, honestly, thank you so much. Stay on the line, and I'll, but I'm going to end this little interview there now, sir, and we'll, I'll catch you later. Sure. Thank you, honestly, Grant, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. There you go. <laughs> oh, wow. You better not keep it for bloody months. Listen up for Grant later on when he's speaking to Cheryl Morgan. Next up is Tau City Radio, David Bradshaw.
Our city, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message, it was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow.
Hello, Starship Sofa listeners. This is David Bradshaw talking to you from Dartmouth, Nova Scotia in Canada. Tony, thanks for having me on the show and for playing my song, Tau Seti Radio. And by the way, congratulations on the Hugo win. I thoroughly enjoyed watching you yelling, screaming, and dancing around your living room. Tony had asked for some music to help kick off Starship Sofa Stories, Volume 2, and this gave me the chance to uh, talk about folk music as well as UFOs, two of my favorite things. Uh, you, there's sort of UFOs in them, you know, like those great old movies, like my one of my personal favorites, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, that uh, featured all those wonderful Ray Harryhausen special effects. Uh, that particular movie was inspired by the Donald Kehoe book, Aliens from Space, uh, the apparently true story, the behind-the-scenes uh, facts of what were going on, that uh, UFOs were real and the uh, U.S. government and the military were aware of them, and there was all sorts of wonderful things going on behind the scenes that you didn't know about and perhaps didn't need to. Uh, one of my favorite tales from that particular book, was the discussion of a Project Ozma under the direction of a Frank Drake around 1960, around 1960 or 61. Uh, they pointed a, a great deal of radio equipment out into space towards the relatively close star Tau Ceti. The hope was that they were going to pick up alien transmissions, some signs of uh, intelligent communication, radio broadcast, the like, and that maybe if we were really lucky, not only would we hear some of these sorts of things, but perhaps be able to communicate with them. And then who knows? what benefits might come. The project was wildly successful. As a matter of fact, as soon as they pointed the equipment at Tau Ceti and turned it on, they almost immediately received what was clearly an intelligent communication. The equipment was very quickly shut off and the, ca- and the program abruptly cancelled shortly thereafter. The official explanation for shutting the project down was simply that it was silly, a waste of time, and nothing was to be gained by it. But supposedly the real reason was that the content of the communication, whatever the signal from Tau Ceti was, was simply so alarming uh, that uh, it was decided to be in everybody's best interest to cut off communications and never try again. I imagine the song Tau Ceti Radio as a reply to that alien signal. That is to say, uh, the last time we chatted we seemed to have misunderstood each other. Perhaps we got off to a bad start. Perhaps we can do better this time. The idea here is not simply wondering about the unknown, but literally trying to communicate with it, uh, being the best option available to us since we can't actually go and face it in person just yet. Perhaps with a little time, though, we will. Well, that's my story. Thanks for listening, and I uh, hope you enjoy the song. And uh, if it goes over well here, I'm going to radio it off to Tau Ceti next week. Thanks a lot, folks. Wow. What? Come on, man. David, you saw... Wow, what a talented guy. David, thank you so much. That's all arranged and performed, you know, by David. Wow, thank you, David. How cool is that? David, thank you so much. Next, Cheryl Morgan's observation deck for Starship so far. Cheryl had a little MP3 recorder at the Hugo parties, the afterwards parties, and this is the result. Cheryl Morgan for the Hugo Award-winning podcast Starship Sofa. That doesn't get old, Tony. Keep enjoying it. I'm here in the post-ceremony party uh, in the Crown Plaza in Melbourne, just over the river from the convention centre. There are still lots of people here busily enjoying themselves, and I'm going to see if I can find one or two people to talk to. 
Starting, of course, with our very own Grant. Grant, I'm recording um, and it's some interviews from the party for Starship Sofa. How, how are you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> oh, that was a lovely speech that you made up there. Did Tony write that for you? Uh, Tony did not write that for me. He, uh, he piked out, so I had to come up with something myself. And that's a very nice trophy I see that uh, you're swinging around there. Yeah, it's very nice. It's as yeah. nice as your one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mine, mine is quite nice too, yes. So, uh, um, how are we getting this one to Tony? Are we just going to, like, put it up in orbit or something? Or? Well, I thought I'd, I'd look after it for a while, and ten years or so from now, I'll, I'll, I'll get it to him. That, that, that sounds like a really good idea, actually. <laughs> okay, well, thanks for making such a lovely speech, Grant, and I'll see if I can find anybody else to talk to. Uh, just wandering around the um, party here. We've, uh, oh, this. Uh, John Scalzi and Cory Doctorow sat talking to each other. Let's see what they have to say. I'm doing a little recording for Starship Sofa just to uh, keep Tony happy and sober. Uh, um, any comments, Corey? You've had a good uh, convention? Uh, I've had a brilliant convention, and this may be my favorite Hugos of all times. For one thing, I didn't lose one. Uh, or two, and um, a whole bunch of people I really like won a bunch of awards that I think they really deserved, including you, Tony. Thank you very much. John, you, Cheryl. <laughs> I think I, I've won three. It's starting to get silly, you know. Rub it's it a... in! Rub it in! <laughs> Not that I'm bitter! Rub it in! <laughs> John, you lost one. Tough luck, babe. Uh, I didn't lose one. Charlie won one. So that's the, that's the salient point there. You need another one in that sentence. He won one, one. He won one, 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 But the fact of the matter is I'm extraordinarily happy for Charlie, and it was a wonderful class of people uh, in that uh, category. So it's hard to be really worked up. And, of course, I have, too. So. Right. 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 Not to rub it in. <laughs> so, but no, it, it was perfectly fun. I was the, actually the highlight for me was uh, giving away the Campbell o Award and having uh, Shauna McGuire win it because she was just so very happy. It was just, it was great to be up there with her. You know, I remember being in that same position and being just as happy. And she looks great in the Campbell tiara. Oh no, she rocks the tiara in many, many exciting ways, and so it's just uh, the best of all possible worlds. Okay, well, thanks. Thanks very much, guys. I'll go and find somebody else to annoy. We uh, are just wandering through the crowd here. You can hear all the background noise, I'm sure, and I can see Vince Doherty, the Hugo administrator. Hi, Vince. I'm doing a recording for Starship Sofa. Um, this has been a pretty amazing set of Hugo Awards, all told, what with the... Uh, the ties for the nominations, the record numbers of participants, and, and a tie for the winner of Best Novel. That must have been a bit scary. It was. Uh, on the contrary, actually, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, both the uh, record numbers of uh, nominations and votes, and also the what, what turned out to be six uh, uh, ties for sixth place in the nominations, although it turned out to be five because of a decline, and then the tie for the novel. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's great, it's great to have the secret as well, something that nobody else uh, knows. The, the novel tie actually was something that we wondered if it was going to happen even in the last two weeks. The, the two items were neck and neck for a long time. On the night that we closed, uh, 
electronic voting, it, it was still neck and neck. It was literally a tie. We knew we had to go to the post box to pick up the paper ballots. Uh, we picked them up, and as each one went in, it went one, then the other, then one, then the other, and it ended up a tie again. So it was really good fun. Uh, it, 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 unexpected statistically, of course, but great fun. Yeah. It, it, it makes me feel like I want to work in Hugo administration. Oh, don't do it, don't do it. You, uh, you still have all your hair. I'm, uh, I'm afraid mine has all gone the way of all flesh. Well, I, I, I thought about it, and then I realised that if I was a Hugo administrator, I couldn't win anymore. So. Well, indeed, there is that, but then I, I, I only run conventions. I have no talent in writing, so for me, not being eligible is not a problem. That's why I'm doing it again next year. Well, uh, you've done a marvellous job this year, so I'm delighted to know that you'll be in charge again. Thank you very much, and also congratulations as well to you and all the uh, Clark's Roll team. Thank you, thank you. Uh, here's Al Reynolds. Al, how are you enjoying the convention? Uh, it's brilliant, Cheryl. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm so running a bit low today on energy. That's probably a good thing. I've been busy. We, uh, the uh, Great British domination of the fan categories continues. Uh, win for Newcastle. Yes, Mr. what is it? Tony Smith from the Starship Sofa. Wonderful. I'm really pleased with him. Yeah, I'm recording this for him. Yeah. We're, we're, oh, <laughs> we should be all this. He's going to beat me up now, isn't he? <laughs> Ah, oh, these, these Newcastle people. It, yeah. yeah, I lived there for three years, so I'm, you know, I'm allowed to take the piss. Yep. Well, I, I think we all get to take the piss of Tony today, and, yeah, yeah. and you can all take the piss from me as well. Yeah, well done. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thanks very much, Al. Okay, sure. Wow. Um, much giggling and squeeing. Um, Sean Tan is deep in conversation with Kim Stanley Robinson, so I'd better not interrupt them. Um, let me see if I can grab Will McIntosh. Right. Hey, Will, um, I'm doing a recording for Starship Sofa, uh, just going around talking to people at the parties. How does it feel to be a Hugo winner? It's uh, um, uh, stunning. I, uh, I have no words. I don't know. It's... Well, c- congratulations, mate. You know, keep on drinking, and when you wake up tomorrow morning, it'll still be real. Thank <laughs> you. Okay. Moving on. Oh, here, here's Patty Wells, the chair of the Reno uh, World Con, who she'll be in charge next year. Patty, are you getting nervous yet? Oh, I've been nervous for ages. And uh, are we going to have as much excitement in the Hugos in Reno as we've had here? I was setting up the, the Hugo party. I haven't even read all the results yet. But yes, yes, definitely. It's a wonderful party, Patty. Thanks ever so much for throwing it for us. You're most welcome. I love throwing parties. And I'm sure it'll be a very, very impressive party in Reno for those of you who managed to get there. Just moving aside into another room. It's a little bit more quiet in here. And here's Charlie Stross. Charlie, dear. Oh, oh no, he's uh, been dragged away by uh, somebody else. Um, he's got to sign some autographs or something. I could uh, try to interview Fluffful, who, um, great, great Dark Lord of the Universe. Do you have anything to stay through sh- Starship Sofa? Um, he, he says he's going to eat Tony's brains, um, which I think is an entirely reasonable thing to do, um, because Tony's brains by now will be well and truly pickled, and they will be taste very nice. Charlie, I'm doing a, a brief recording for a Starship so far. Would sure. you like to say a few words? Happy yeah. man? Uh, yeah, I'm over moon, and I'm extremely surprised. <laughs> 
Well, great. No, it, uh, I'm extremely surprised as well. I certainly didn't expect to win. Mm, I really, I had not prepared a speech because I knew Cage Baker was going to win. There you go. And I knew that Locust was going to win. Perhaps, perhaps we had a secret ingredient, added tentacles. Tentacles are good. Yes. As, uh, as Peter Watts said on his T-shirt, I welcome our squid overlords. Thank you, Fluff. Yes. I will have my brains eaten later. I'll allow Charlie to get off and do exciting things. Um, oh, and uh, I appear to have been given a cocktail shaker. I, I have my hands full at the moment. I would love to have a cocktail shaker. Uh, just to explain to the listeners, um, all of the uh, Hugo nominees get uh, a present from the, uh, the party. This is a present from the Reno people. Um, they're running the Hugo Losers Party this year and uh, each uh, convention when it runs the Losers Party um, gives people a gift appropriate to some, something about their convention um, Reno obviously um, big on uh, casinos and things like that so they're giving out cocktail shakers to everybody and um, I'll just wander around and see if we can find anybody else to talk to here. There are lots of people. Oh, here's Jonathan Strahan. Uh, Jonathan, uh, tough luck, mate. Um, a lot of people were expecting you to win when it was a local convention. But... Look, I've had a, a lot of love from the Hugo voters, and I'm very, very happy indeed. You know, Ellen is a very fine uh, editor, editor and a very worthy winner, and I did very well on the vote, so I honestly can only say that I, I walk away happy. You know, I would never second-guess the Hugo voters. Uh, Peter Watts had some very kind words for you while he was, was up on stage, saying that uh, you, you kept him going um, with uh, pestering, pestering him for stories when uh, he was having a hard time of, of it. So. I think winners get crazed with the serotonin rush when they actually uh, win, and they say all sorts of lovely, wonderful, kind things. All I did was ask a, a very, very good writer to write stories, and he wrote me some very good ones. And I'm also very happy, I mean, not to sort of get off topic, that one of them found a home with Clark's World and I think will uh, end up coming out doing very well next year. We're um, crossing our fingers for that one, yes. It uh, it didn't quite make it in the parsecs uh, over at DragonCon yesterday, but uh, you never know. Oh, look, like, you know, the, the year is still young, you know, and I think uh, this story and some other stuff has put Peter on, on the, the map with Hugo voters in a really significant way. And he, he did a wonderful job with the story, so he's probably the best... Well, he's a, he ranks amongst the best hard science fiction writers knocking around right now. I, I love his stuff. Yeah, yeah, uh, I certainly love his stuff as well. Um, I have to try and find him to talk to him, but he seems to have uh, the other room, run off somewhere. Okay, okay. Well, thanks Thank very you. much, Jonathan. Uh, Perry Middlemiss here is uh, one of the co-chairs of uh, AussieCon 4. Perry, I'm just doing a recording for Starship so far. Uh, we've had a, a wonderful time here over the past few days, so thank you very much. Um, yeah, you're how, welcome. How's it been from your end? Uh, you should never ask a chair of a Worldcon how the Worldcon has been while he's still in the middle of it. Uh, I really feel as though I have no idea. I'm sort of drifting along across the top, sometimes drifting along the bottom. You just have no idea how it's going to end up, and you don't know idea. You have no idea what's actually happening at the time. Okay. Well, uh, as far as I can see, everybody is very happy. So uh, you've got another day to go, and uh, then you can retire. Everybody seems to be telling me it's working along pretty well, so I have to believe them. So, but the, the vibe seems to be pretty good, and seems to have gone off okay. I think I can probably get out before they figure out what it is I've done, and I'll be all right. Marvelous. Thanks very much, Perry. All right. Ah, moving back into 
the other room. Let's see if I can manage to get a word with China Mieville. Sneak in here. <laughs> I have no idea what it is China is talking about. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, I was so relieved that you had to go up and accept that and not me. Congratulations, you guys are so deserving. <laughs> well, Thank you very much. Yes. It's, it's, uh, yeah, as you can see, folks, um, there is quite a party going on, and uh, occasionally people will just grab hold of you and talk to you. So, as the uh, the young lady who's accepting on behalf of Weird Tales, and um, yeah, I had to go up and uh, collect that Hugo, and she didn't. Um, China is, uh, uh, oh, he's having a long academic argument with Helen Merrick, um, and that might be a, a little difficult to work my way in there. Um, obviously, he's uh, in a great, uh, great demand tonight. Um, Everybody, I think, is very busy. <laughs> now people want to take my photograph while I'm recording this podcast. Uh, that's just the way things are going, I'm afraid. Oh, sorry. No, 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 by all means. Uh, here we have Rani Graf from Israel, who also wants to congratulate me. Rani, would you like to say something to the listeners of Starship Sofa? Well, I think it was a great um, Hugo ceremony. I think Garth was an excellent master of ceremonies. And it's a pity you're not here, everyone, because Australia is great, and this is a great world con. The very loud squeeing noises you can hear in the background are uh, Gail Carragher. I'm not quite sure what she's excited about, but there you go. (laughs) Thank you, Rani. Um, uh, Here's Mira Lafferty. Mira, I'm just doing a little recording for Starship Sofa. Would you like to say something? So far, congratulations, Tony. I was so happy. I was trying to be all official and and objective, but I couldn't be when Tony won. I was so excited. I yelled and stuff. But, um, no, I'm doing great. I'm having a blast. I'm very proud of our online uh, friends, Starship Sofa and Clark's World, winning Hugo's this year. I think it's excellent. Um, Excellent uh, uh, sword I'm looking for. Damn it, there's been wine. Tony, I blame you. I just just choose to blame Tony for the wine. Yep, Um, everybody is blaming Tony. Good. Um, no, uh, a precedent. Precedent. Yes. Tony and Clark's World have opened up the. They, they've opened the doors, and I really think awesome things are going to happen. So thank you guys to Tony and Clark's World for uh, blazing the trail, because only good things can happen from here on out. Uh, thanks very much, Bio, and you did a great job helping me out with the live coverage of the Hugo's. Thank you for inviting me, Cheryl. It was wonderful. Okay. Well, I think that's about it. I'm probably not going to get anywhere near China tonight uh, or anywhere near Sean Tan uh, so I think I've just found Grant again so let's just sign off together this has been Cheryl Morgan and Grant Stone for Starship Sofa good night Starship Sofa the Hugo award winning <laughs> fanzine from Melbourne good night good night there you go Cheryl thank you so much wow <laughs> so Back to normality. I was going to have a, a Starship Sofa interrogations, but it's a good hour long, the actual one. I was going to 
put on and I thought I'll just kind of keep it normal kind of size now so we're going to jump into the main fiction it is none other than Alan Steele's This Side of Jordan Alan Steele who is the writer of the Fantastic Coyote series of books amazing I am listening to the very last one and loving every minute of it so this is The Other Side of Jordan the story is narrated by our good friend Peter Caval Peter's done an amazing narration on this so Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. The Other Side of Jordan by Alan Steele Read by Peter Cavell Jordan and I broke up on the docks of Leeport, about as lovely a place as you can have for the end of an affair. It was a warm summer evening in Hamaliel, with sailboats on the water, and Bear, the local name for Ursae Majoris 47B, hovering above the West Channel. We'd gone down to the waterfront to have dinner at a small bistro that specialized in grilled brownhead fresh from the fishing net, but even before the waiter brought us the menu, the inevitable arguments had begun. There had been a lot of those lately, most of them about issues too trivial to remember but too important to ignore, and even though we settled the matter, nonetheless the quarrel caused us to lose our appetites. So we skipped dinner, and instead ordered a bottle of waterfruit wine— and by the time we'd worked our way through the bottle, she and I decided that it was time to call it quits. By then, it had become apparent that we weren't in love. Mutual infatuation, yes. We had the strong passions that are both the blessing and the curse of the young, and Jordan and I never failed to have a good time in bed. Yet desire was not enough to keep us together. When it came right down to it, we were very different people. She'd been born and raised on Coyote, a third-generation descendant of original colonists. I was an emigre from Earth, one of the gringos who'd managed to escape the meltdown of the Western Hemisphere Union before the hyperspace bridge to the Old World was destroyed. She came from money. I'd been a working man all my life. She was a patron of the arts. My idea of a good time was a jug of bear shine and a hoot-and-holler band down at the tavern. She was quiet and reserved, I couldn't keep my mouth shut, even when it was in my best interest to do so. But more important, and this was what really brought things to a head, she was content to live out the rest of her life on Coyote. Indeed, Jordan's ambitions extended no farther than inheriting her family's hemp plantation, where we'd met in the first place, much to her parents' disapproval, since I was little more than a hired hand, while having a platoon of children— I was only too willing to help her practice the art of making babies, but the thought of everything to follow made my heart freeze. After five years on Coyote, fifteen by earth reckoning, long enough for me to have allegedly become an adult, I wanted to move on. Now that the Starbridge had been rebuilt and the Coyote Federation had been tentatively accepted as a member of the Talus, humankind was moving out into the galaxy. Uh, Let me explain the Talus. In short, it's a loose alliance of the Milky Way's starfaring races, or at least those who have built star bridges, formed to promote diplomacy, trade, and cultural exchange. Sort of a galactic club, so to speak, with humankind as the members who've only recently paid their dues. Anyway, there were worlds out there that no human had ever seen before, along with dozens of races whom we'd just met. This was my calling or at least so I thought, and the last thing I wanted to do was settle down to a dull life of being husband and father. So we broke up. It wasn't hostile, just a shared agreement that her romance had gone as far as it could, and perhaps it would be better if we no longer saw each other. Nonetheless, I said something I'd later regret. 
I called her a rich girl who liked to slum with lower-class guys, which was how I'd secretly come to regard her. I'm surprised she didn't dump her glass over my head. But at least we managed to get out of the restaurant without causing a scene. A brief hug, but no kisses. Then we went our separate ways. The next morning I quit my job at the plantation. Her father couldn't have been more pleased. Then went back to my apartment to pack my bags and turn in the key to the landlady. By the end of the day I was aboard the Leeport Ferry, on my way to the new Brighton spaceport. I thought I was done with Jordan, and that I'd never see her again. But some women cast a spell that can't easily be broken. It wasn't hard to land a job as a spacer. The Federation Merchant Marine was always looking for a few good people, so long as you were smart enough to fill out the application form, were reasonably fit, and didn't have any outstanding arrest warrants. No experience necessary. You trained on the job, although the washout rate was high enough that the probation clause of the employment contract was invoked more often than not. But the pay was good, and the benefits included full health coverage, two weeks paid vacation, performance bonuses, and even a retirement plan. When Starbridge Coyote was destroyed, it was at the height of the refugee crisis, with as many as a dozen ships arriving from Earth each and every day. I'll explain Starbridges, too. Uh, they're a means of getting from one place in the galaxy to another, very fast, by using zero-point energy generators to create artificial wormholes within giant rings. You have to have one at your departure point, though, and another one at your destination, for you to get from here to there. A religious fanatic blew up the first one we humans built in the 47 Ursae Majoris system, because he didn't like aliens. Leave it to a nut job to screw things up for everyone else. After the Starbridge went down, those ships from Earth were effectively stranded in the 47 Uma system with no way home. The Coyote Federation laid claim to those vessels and reflagged them, and once the Starbridge was rebuilt, with the technological assistance of the Hijad, whose emissaries had been marooned on Coyote as well, the Federation now had in its possession a merchant fleet consisting of everything from passenger ships and freighters to a wide assortment of landers and shuttles. The Hijad were the first extraterrestrials our people had encountered, and also our primary sponsors in the Talus. They're from a planet in the Rho Coronae Borealis system, and look a little like giant tortoises, only standing upright and without shells. Nice folks, albeit a little persnickety. Oh, and they eat marijuana the way we eat oregano. Go figure. When the Hijad offered a helping hand with the Starbridge, they'd carefully attached a string or two. Although they'd come to respect the humans on Coyote, they were also aware that the individual who'd caused the Starbridge's destruction was from Earth, and this was just one more reason for them to regard the cradle of humanity with considerable distrust. So they made a major stipulation. The rebuilt Starbridge could be used for travel to any world in our corner of the galaxy except Earth. Or at least until the High Council of the Talus, to which the Hijad belonged, determined that Earth no longer posed a threat to other starfaring races. And if the Federation didn't like it, the Hajad could always withdraw their ambassadors, shut down their embassy on New Florida, and leave Coyote once and for all, slamming the door into hyperspace behind them. They'd reconstructed the Starbridge, sure, but they also knew how to disable it, so that no ships could pass through it without their permission. To be sure, quite a few people objected to being cut off from Earth. Yet a surprisingly large majority supported the Hijad's decision. Ever since the unexpected arrival of the first Western Hemisphere Union starship, four years after the Alabama party set foot on Coyote, and the military occupation that followed, 
Earth had been little but trouble for the colonies. The refugee crisis had been only the latest example of how the folks back home were using and abusing the New World, with little but a supply of trade goods to show for it. But if the Talus was willing to make up for this shortfall with a new source of vital materials, well, why bother with Earth at all? So Coyote had become the latest partner in a galactic network of commerce and cultural exchange, with vessels constantly coming and going through the Star Bridge, bound for distant worlds whose very existence had been unknown until only a few years ago. And those ships needed crews. The fleet already had plenty of captains and first officers and navigators and engineers. Those guys had come with their vessels, and their jobs essentially remained unchanged. But someone had to load cargo, repair hull plates, scrub decks, cook meals, clean toilets, and otherwise perform all the menial tasks to go with running a starship. And that's how guys like me earned our paychecks. After I passed through a four-week boot camp and earned my union card, I became a payload specialist third class, which is a polite way of saying that I was a cargo rat. My first billet was aboard the Lady Emilia, a Jovian-class freighter that made regular runs out to a planet in the HD-114-386 system, locally known as... well, I can't even pronounce the name. The inhabitants called themselves the Arsashi, and they had a use for the mountain briar our loggers cut in the highlands of Great Dakota. So I spent a couple of days loading lumber aboard a pair of payload containers, and once the containers were lifted into orbit and attached to the Lady Amelia, off we went to the Puppis constellation. I didn't see much of the Arsashi homeworld. A small planet, the color of earwax, in orbit around a white dwarf. Its atmosphere had too much ammonia and too little nitrogen for it to be habitable by humans, which is, indeed, the case for most worlds of the Talus. Yet the natives were friendly enough, for a race of eight-foot-tall, bug-eyed yeti. Once my fellow rats and I unloaded five tons of wood, the Arsashi did their best to make Amelia's crew as comfortable as possible, even putting us up for the night in a small dome suitable for humans. Their food was indigestible, but at least we had a nice view of a nearby shield volcano, which, so far as I could tell, was the only thing on their planet worth seeing. I stayed aboard Amelia for the next six months, coyote time, long enough to make five more trips to HD 114-386. By then, I'd ended my probation period and had been promoted to payload specialist second class. I was tired of the Arsashi and their dismal little wad of a planet, so after that last run, I gave up my billet to another spacer and went in search of a new job. This time, I lucked out. The next available post for a cargo rat was aboard the Pride of Cucamonga, the freighter that made history by undertaking the first trade expedition to Rokoroni Borealis. Word had it that, if you were fortunate enough to crew aboard the Pride, then you could get a job anywhere in the fleet. As things turned out, the Pride's cargo master was about to take maternity leave, and Captain Harker, himself a near-legendary figure, needed someone to fill her position. I was barely qualified for the job, but the letter of recommendation that the Lady Amelia's captain had written on my behalf went far to ease his reluctance, so I managed to get myself one of the choice jobs in the Merchant Marine. Cargo for the Pride of Cucamonga was cannabis sativa, but that wasn't the only thing we brought with us. The Talus races opened trade with Coyote for our raw materials, yet it wasn't long before we learned that they were willing to pay better for something else entirely. Not our technology, with the exception of seawater desalinization for which the Sorrenta gave us negative mass drive, anything humans had invented the aliens had long since perfected. To our surprise, what they liked the most about us was our culture. The Nord enjoyed our music. 
They didn't think much of Mozart or Bach, and thought jazz was boring, but they liked bluegrass, and were absolutely wild about traditional Indian music. Apparently both the banjo and the sitar sounded much like their own instruments, only different. The Sorrenta were fascinated by our art, the more abstract the better, and didn't mind very much if what we brought them were copies of Pollock, Kandinsky, or Mondrian. The Kuata were interested in nature films. Coyote's surface gravity and atmospheric density meant they'd never set foot on our world, but they loved seeing vids of the plants and animals we found there. As for the Hijad, the Hijad were intrigued by our literature. They'd learned how to translate most of our major languages long before humans actually made contact with them, a long story that I shouldn't need to repeat, so they read everything we brought them, from Shakespeare, Milton, and Shelley, to 20th century potboilers, to the Chronicles of Prince Rupert. So not only was the pride of Cucamonga carrying 5,000 pounds of cannabis to Ro Corona Borealis, but also a comp loaded with novels, stories, and poems by authors as diverse as Jane Austen, John D. MacDonald, Edward E. Smith, and Dr. Seuss, all as another payment for the sophisticated micro-assemblers that had enabled us to transform log cabin colonies like Liberty and New Boston into cities the likes of which had never been seen on Earth. Our nanotech was primitive compared to theirs, but then again, there's nothing else in the universe quite like green eggs and ham. Seriously, there isn't. I know it's a children's book and quite old at that, but if you haven't yet read Green Eggs and Ham, stop reading this story right now and go find a copy. Come back when you're done. You'll thank me for it. We never actually landed on Hajar, of course. No non-Hajad ever had, with the sole exception of the Shah's Bran, the great teacher of the Satang. Instead, the pride once again docked at Talas Quaspa, the immense space colony in orbit above Hijar that served as one of the major rendezvous points for the Talus races. This was the first time I'd visited the house of the Talus, the place from which I'd embark on a long journey that would eventually bring me to Hex. But before then, I'd send a letter home. After I left Jordan, I told myself that she was just another girl with whom I'd had a brief affair, and that I'd miss her no more than any other woman I've slept with. She was gone. No regrets. As time went by, though, I gradually discovered that I was wrong. I did miss Jordan, and I did regret the things I'd said to her. It wasn't as if I was lacking female companionship. I'd had a brief fling with Lady Amelia's comm officer, and on one of those occasions when another merchant marine vessel was docked at Talas Quaspa, I could always count on a one-night stand with another Federation spacer. But these dalliances were nothing more than sexual exercise— and more than once, I woke up in a bunk with a woman whose name I barely knew to find myself thinking, if only for a moment, that it was Jordan who was curled up beside me. Yet when I tried to get in touch with her, those times when I was back on Coyote between flights, I discovered that she'd taken measures to cut me out of her life. Her pad number had been changed, and when I tried calling her house, her folks would immediately disconnect, leaving me talking to a dead phone. Mutual friends informed me that she was still in Leeport and hadn't yet taken up with someone else. On the other hand, she never mentioned my name or seemed to miss me in any way. Nonetheless, I wanted her back. And so, during my third trip to Talas Quaspa, I wrote her a letter. In order to send mail across the galaxy, one relies on hyperspace communication links. Once a message was encrypted and addressed to its recipient, it's sent to a network of transceivers maintained by the Talus, which in turn relays the letter to its intended destination. 
Unfortunately, that means it's theoretically possible for the message to be intercepted, decrypted, and read anywhere along the line. One has to be able to translate the written language of an alien race in order to do that, of course, and while I doubted that anyone would have much interest in what I had to say to my former girlfriend, nonetheless I didn't want others to read my mail. So I opted for a slower means of communication. I hand-wrote my letter on pages ripped from my logbook, sealed them in an envelope, and addressed it to Jordan's home. A friend of mine who was heading back to Coyote aboard another ship offered to carry my letter for me. An old-fashioned way of doing things, sure, but at least I'd be a little more assured of privacy. In that letter, I let Jordan know where I was and what I was doing, then went on to apologize for the things I'd said to her. I told her that I missed her very much and that I wanted to see her again. I also attached a recent picture of me standing watch on the Pride's Bridge, the galaxy-trotting spacer and all that. After adding the ship's hyperlink suffix, no sense in her going through the same rigmarole if she didn't want to, I gave the letter to my buddy, and then I went about my business and tried not to be anxious about when I'd get a reply. None came. A couple of weeks later, the Pride returned to Coyote to drop off cargo and take on another load of weed and books. Just before we left for Rokoronai Borealis again, Captain Harker informed me that the regular cargo master had successfully delivered her baby, and that she would soon be coming back to work. After this trip, I'd have to find another ship. So I sent a second letter to Jordan in which I informed her of my change of plans before reiterating everything I'd written in my first letter. I waited. Still no response. At Talis Quaspa, I happened to run into an old acquaintance, another guy who'd gone through training at the same time as I did. His ship was the Texas Rose, a long-range merchanteer that didn't come and go between just two planets, but instead traveled among the Talus worlds on year-long voyages, carrying freight from one planet to another. My friend had done two of these circuits, and he'd seen enough of the galaxy. The time had come for him to go home. I spent the night getting drunk and having a long talk with my heart. The following morning, still nursing a hangover, I went to see Captain Harker and asked permission to leave the Pride and take a job that had just opened up on the Rose. Ted was willing to do this, and so was the Rose's captain, and so my friend and I swapped billets. He returned to Coyote aboard the Pride, while I... Let's be honest, I told myself that I was fulfilling my ambition to see the stars, but the truth of the matter was that I was running away from a woman who, through her silence, had told me that she wanted nothing more to do with me. But still, I continued to write to her. It had become a habit, a way of passing time when I was off duty. I had no idea whether Jordan was receiving my letters, let alone reading them, but nonetheless it was something I had to do. For the next year, I visited worlds that were once beyond my reach. At Tau Budis, I walked upon the shores of a methane sea beneath the ruddy glow of a variable star. At HD 15706, in the Ursa Minor constellation, I found myself on the moon of a super-Jovian whose orbit about its primary was so eccentric that its summers were hot enough to boil mercury, and the carbon dioxide of its atmosphere froze solid during the winter. No indigenous life was possible in such a hellhole, but the Kuata had established a mining outpost there, and so the Texas Rose took on a load of iron ingots in exchange for vids of ice medusae. From high orbit above the Sorrenta homeworld, in the HD 73256 system, I saw one of the wonders of the galaxy. A continental mountain range, larger and higher than even the Andes, which primitive Sorrenta had spent countless generations carving into the likeness of the god they'd worshipped in ancient times, 
until it resembled a vast, somber face perpetually staring up into the sky. I'm told that the Sorrento went to all the trouble to do this because they wanted their god to come down from the sky and pay them a visit, which raises the obvious question. If their god had never visited them before, how did the Sorrento know what it looked like? I cannot figure out religion. All these worlds, and many others, I told Jordan about in my letters, for even though I'd tried to run away, I couldn't escape my memory of her. I traveled hundreds of light years, visited nearly a dozen planets, and yet every night I lay awake in my bunk and wished that she was there with me. And then, at the farthest point in the Rose's circuitous route, we arrived at Hex. Humans didn't learn about Hex until we made contact with the Nord, and even then it wasn't until after their homeworld was destroyed when a rogue black hole passed through its system at HD 70642. The Nord met our people at Talus Kospa, and when they found that we had something they wanted, did I mention that they really loved bluegrass? They offered to reveal to us the Starbridge coordinates of the place where they'd gone after they evacuated Nordash. At first we were only politely curious, but then a Federation Navy ship went there and realized that this information was worth its weight in banjos. And let me tell you, that's a hell of a lot of banjos. HD 76700 is a G-class star located in the Volans constellation, about 194 light-years from Earth. It's also the home system of the Danui, a rather reclusive race that, although capable of interstellar travel and hence a member of the Talus, wasn't much interested in visiting other worlds. Instead, the Danui did exactly the opposite. They made something that would guarantee that other starfaring races would visit them instead. They built Hex. Once, several millennia ago, HD 76700 was home to a fairly modest solar system, with a couple of terrestrial-sized planets in stable orbits within its habitable zone, and a small gas giant in close proximity to the star itself. Except for the hot jupe, an old-time name that spacers still use for Jovians that are way too close to their suns, those planets no longer exist. The Danui dismantled them. Don't ask how, no one knows and the Danui aren't telling to construct the largest artificial habitat in the entire galaxy. Picture a geodesic sphere. The technical term is geode, or twisted dual geodesic dome, comprised of hexagons, with empty space at the center of each hex. Now, make that geode 186 million miles in diameter, with the circumference of 584,337,600 miles. The legs of the individual hexagons are hollow cylinders 1,000 miles long and 100 miles wide, with a total perimeter of 6,000 miles. Construct this enormous sphere around a small yellow sun at the radial distance of one astronomical unit, leaving the hot jupe where it is in order to furnish the hexes near the equator with an eclipse once every four days. Rotate the entire thing so that centrifugal force provides gravity within each cylinder, ranging from 2 Gs at the equator to nearly 0 G at the poles. The top half of each cylinder is a transparent roof comprised of some polymeric substance that provides radiation protection while also retaining atmospheric pressure. The result is a habitat the size of a planetary system, comprised of nearly 100 trillion cylinders, each with its own individual environment. The Danui did this, and then they opened the doors and invited their neighbors to move in. Why go to such effort? 
Damned if anyone knew, except that they liked company but hated to travel. But what everyone agreed upon was that only the Danui would even conceive of such a thing, let alone pull it off. As a race, they had what, in a human, would be diagnosed as Asperger syndrome. Shy, inept at communication, and ugly as sin, they looked like gigantic tarantulas with enormous lobster-like heads. The Danui nonetheless were genius engineers, capable of focusing their entire attention on a single goal, and working at it obsessively until it was brought to completion. At some point in their history, they decided to pull apart their homeworld, along with its closest neighbor and a nearby asteroid belt, and turn it into Hex. That's what humans called the place. The other races of the Talus, of course, had their own names for it, and nearly every one of them had accepted the Danui invitation to establish colonies within individual Hexes. There was no reason for anyone to push or shove, plenty of room for everyone and then some, and the Danui were willing to help newcomers transform their Hexes into miniature replicas of their native worlds. The only stipulation was that the inhabitants live together in peace which was an easy thing to agree to. Wars are fought over territory, after all, and who'd want to go to war over a place where there's more elbow room than anyone could possibly want? Besides, the other Talus races had already seen what happened to the Morath when they'd attempted to invade the Kuata Hex. The Danui had simply sealed off the Morath Hex, then jettisoned it into space toward the sun. It had taken nearly three months for the Morath colony to fall into HD 76700 and the few survivors were told to leave Hex and never return. This is just one example of why war is nearly non-existent within the Talus. Some of the member races are just too damn powerful for anyone to screw around with. Humans were only the latest race to stake out land on Hex. Our six Habs were located about halfway up the northern hemisphere, where the surface gravity was about 0.7g, less than Earth's, but just a little more than Coyote's. The Texas Rose entered spherical mode between Habs 1 and 2. A mile in diameter, it was spacious enough to hanger the entire Federation fleet, and indeed two other vessels were already docked there. Our ships had been coming to Hex for over a year now, bringing materials necessary to turn our hexagon into a little version of Coyote. Now that the Rose had completed its circuit, about half of our cargo would end up here, most of it various items we'd acquired in trade with other races. So far, only Hab 1, christened Nueva Italia by those who lived there, was settled, and even so, its population was still less than a thousand. Not many people on Coyote were willing to pull up roots and relocate so far away from others of their kind. A small town, Milan, had been built near the western end of the cylinder, not far from the tram station that connected Nueva Italia with the other Habs in our hex. The dwellings were prefab faux birch yurts shipped from 47 Uma, but it was hoped that, once sufficient forest land was cultivated, the colonists would have their own supply of timber. I spent the better part of my first day on Hex driving a forklift, hauling pallets, crates, and barrels from the tram to an open-sided shed where the supplies were stockpiled, so I didn't get much of a chance to look around. Indeed, I was trying hard not to. I'd seen many strange things during my tour of the galaxy, but even this minuscule corner of Hex was mesmerizing. It took an effort to not become distracted by a landscape that lacked a discernible horizon, but instead curved upwards on both sides and at either end until it merged with a barrel-shaped sky where a sun perpetually stayed in the same place, never rising or setting. Even so, the day on Nueva Italia did eventually come to an end. 
The Danui had programmed the window panes to gradually polarize over the course of hours until a semblance of night-time came upon Milan. A collection of yurts in the center of town served as a bed and breakfast for travelers, and nearby was a small tavern. After knocking off work, I joined the rest of my crew at the tavern. Hex marked the end of our long voyage, and the captain was feeling generous. He told the barkeep that he'd pay the tab for everyone at our table, and so we settled in for a night of drinking. I was on my third or fourth pint of ale when I became aware of something tugging at my left foot. Looking down, I found a young woman kneeling beside me. The laces of my work shoes had come undone, and she was retying them for me. Her head was bowed, so the only thing I saw at first was the top of her scalp. Light brown hair fell about her shoulders, hiding her face from me. I started to tell her that I could tie my own shoes, thanks anyway, but then she looked up at me. "'Do I know you?' she asked. "'Yes. Yes, I think you do. You should be more careful. If you walk around with untied shoes, you might trip over them and hurt yourself.' Good advice. I I make mistakes like that sometimes. People are like that. They do things they don't mean to. Um, yeah, you're right. Sometimes you don't... Hush. Jordan reached up to take my face in her hands. I forgive you. She'd received my letters. That was my first question, and any others were unnecessary, or at least just then. In time, she would tell how she'd thought about responding, but decided instead to maintain an aloof silence while waiting to see what I'd say or do next. And when she'd heard enough to convince herself that my apologies were sincere and that I really did love her, she left her family and caught the next ship to Hex, knowing that the Rose would eventually make its way there. And then she'd waited for me to show up, to tell me, I got your letters, Jordan said, once she'd kissed me. I read every one of them. And I'm sorry, too. You don't have to be. She was sitting beside me at the table, her hands in mine. The rest of my crew, realizing that we needed to be left alone, had quietly moved to another side of the room. Anything you said, I don't... No, that's not what I mean. Your letters. I'm sorry, but I don't have them anymore. What did you... I had to get here somehow, and my family didn't want me to... Well, you know how my parents feel about you. So I sold your letters to buy passage out here. I don't understand. Who would buy my letters? Who would even want to read... Who do you think? Who indeed? Of course I forgave her for this. Love is a matter of forgiveness, if nothing else. Since then, we've had a very happy life together, here on Hex, where the sun never sets and we have plenty of neighbors to keep us company. All the same, we try to avoid the hijad. They know enough about us already. How our story ends is none of their business. There you go. Don't forget, copyright as usual, Alan Steeles. And Peter, thank you for a fantastic narration. Next up we have the Living Dead 2 anthology. John Joseph Adams and David Ball Curley talk zombies. Hi. I'm David Barkertley, and I'm here with John Joseph Adams, and we're the hosts of the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast, and we're here today to discuss John's new zombie anthology, The Living Dead 2. Uh, so first of all, could you just tell us a little bit about The Living Dead 1? Um, how did it come about, and who was in it, and what sort of response did you get? 
Well, the first uh, Living Dead came about because uh, uh, Nightshade Books uh, published my anthology Wastelands, and uh, that one was post-apocalyptic, and it uh, did quite well. And so we talked about what else we wanted to do next, and uh, Jeremy Lassen, the editor at Nightshade, uh, just sort of threw out zombies. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about doing zombie anthology, but, um, you know, when we talked about it, I was like, okay, yeah, no, that sounds good. Um, you know, it's, you know, there, there hasn't been like really a, a best of zombie fiction anthology done, um, that, that I knew about. And so, um, you know, there was obviously, there was, um, the, the defining ones, uh, in the, in the nineties done by, uh, edited by John Skip and Craig Spector, the, the book of the dead and still dead. Um, and then they later in, in uh, a couple of years ago did one called, uh, Mondo Zombie, which is sort of the, the third volume in that, in their trilogy. I just did a lot of zombie reading and I put together what I thought were, you know, the best of the best, uh, stories and, uh, you know, included stories by like Stephen King and Clive Barker and, uh, Joe Lansdale and Kelly Link and, uh, Dan Simmons. And, and so it was a pretty diverse range of stories. And I mean, I think, and it was a really, it was a really big, uh, commercial success and a critical, uh, critical success. I mean, it was nominated for the Will Fantasy Award and it's gotten all kind of rave reviews like, um, Paul Godallen of Barnes & Noble, for instance, like said it was the best uh, zombie collection ever. Um, and, you know, there, I, I've seen other reviews that sort of echo that sentiment. So because it did so well, though, um, you know, we decided that we were going to do a second volume. And um, in the second volume, we, you know, I, I incorporated more reprints, but then we have um, about 60% of the book is original. So it's uh, all new stories commissioned specifically for The Living Dead 2. And, you know, The Living Dead 2 has stories by Robert Kirkman and Max Brooks. Um, you know, Robert Kirkman is the, uh, is the creator of the Walking Dead comic book series, which is um, going to be, um, you know, a television series this fall on AMC. And, uh, you know, Max Brooks, of course, wrote World War Z and the Zombie Survival Guide. And, uh, and there's lots of other, like, sort of zombie zombie legends or lo- zombie legends in the making, anyway, um, in the book as well. There's a, a story by John, uh, Jonathan Mayberry and David Wellington, uh, you know, both zombie authors. And... Um, also, uh, Mira Grant, who's a, who's a newer author, she has a book uh, called Feed that came out that um, is, uh, you know, is, is, a, is a new zombie novel. And, and so she has a story in the book as well. And also Amelia Beamer, who wrote The Loving Dead, which uh, came out from Nightshade, uh, you know, earlier this year. And, and, and so, I, as I said, about 60, 60% of the book is original, but then the other 40% are reprints. And the thing about the reprints is that all the reprints are, are fairly um, recent. I mean, uh, all but one of them is from 2000 onward. And uh, the one, the other one is from the '90s, and and none of these stories have appeared in a different zombie anthology. Um, I mean, the closest thing you come to uh, previous zombie appearances, Scott Edelman's story um, appeared in his zombie collection, which is just a uh, you know, it's it's all of his uh, collected zombie fiction to date, and that only came out this year. So that's like one one of the stories possibly you know sort of violates that rule, but. Um, and then, the, and then the other story is uh, by Brett Hammond uh, appeared on a website called Tales of uh, Tales of the Zombie War, um, and so you know that that one's a, a website that just publishes uh, zombie fiction, and I mean it's it's kind of um, it's kind of a fanzine uh, of zombie fiction, and uh, so but I found that one and I thought that one was really great, so I reprinted it. Um, but so those are the two stories, the two the two reprints that may have you know a zombie reader may have found elsewhere, but otherwise, um, if you exclusively read in, in zombie anthologies then you won't have read any of those stories so i mean that was that was my goal to you know not duplicate stuff that's already been in zombie books I mean, especially because there have been a couple other zombie anthologies that have come out since the living dead um for instance john skip had one out called uh zombies in- encounters with the hungry dead and um he reprinted some of the some of the same stories i did in the living dead and but then also a bunch of others that i may have considered otherwise but since he just did that one i didn't want to duplicate his efforts and so i, I made a you know I specifically set out to not reprint stuff that was already, you know, heavily reprinted. So, 
Yeah, and um, the there's a bunch of good reviews out so far uh, for The Living Dead 2. Actually, uh, uh, Paul Godallin, who said The Living Dead was the best zombie anthology he'd ever read, has now said that The Living Dead 2 is the best zombie anthology he's ever read. So, uh, I mean, that meant a lot, obviously, to hear somebody who loved the first one so much, uh, you know, say so- something like that about the new one. See, and there's a, there was a blurb by um, Sean of the Dead himself, Simon Pegg. Uh, how did that come about? Right, yeah, no, that was really great to get that um, uh, for the book, but... Um, so when we were doing publicity for the living dead volume one, um, Joseph Malazzi, who's a producer on uh, stargate, he, he, you know, he has a blog where he does like a book club. And, uh, so he featured the living dead volume one as, as his book club pick for the month, um, one month. And yeah, so a friend of Simon Pegg's named, uh, Paulette Osario, I sort of got in touch with, uh, Joe Malazzi and, and, and told him that, um, you know, Simon really liked the book and, uh, to pass that along to me. So he did that. And I, uh, so Joe passed it along to me. I was very excited. And, and so I asked him if I could have Paulette's contact info. And so I sort of got in touch with her and um, I told her that um, I think by that point we already knew we were doing the living dead too. And so, um, so we sort of got in touch and, and we, and we've been exchanging some emails and, and there was a possibility that Simon was going to write a story for the book, but then that didn't work out. And so, um, you know, so when, once once we put it together, I uh, you know I asked if he would be willing to take a look at um, an early copy of the manuscript, and and so he agreed to, and and he so I guess he liked it as, he liked this volume as well because he you know gave it a nice blurb, said it was a, a must have for the zombie completist. <laughs> so there have been a lot of zombies in pop culture lately, and a lot of people I w- would think are sort of wondering: is there anything new to say about zombies? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there always is um, something new to say. I mean, because zombies are this sort of, they're sort of like a blank canvas that writers can do, um, like, lots of different stuff with. You know, I mean, it, it's all about the creativity of the writer. And, and uh, because because they're so malleable, you can just, you, you can take it in any different direction. And, I mean, I think um, the stories in The Living Dead 2 really sort of showcase what all the different things you can do. I mean, because um, I think there's a lot of variety uh, in the book, um, you know, not just from locale, um, Matt London's story takes place in feudal Japan. Um, uh, Paula Stiles' story takes place in Africa, and and you know, there's also Brian Keane's story in the anthology, which um, which actually has a, a zombie dinosaurs in it. You know, so it's like the idea that well, if, if humans are going to come back to life, well, why wouldn't you know why wouldn't other dead stuff on the earth come back to life? And uh, you know, so I mean, I thought that was a pretty uh, fresh take on well, fresh so to speak, um, as fresh as something with a zombie and uh, with a rotting corpse can be. Um, oh yeah, and then so um, Stephen Popkiss also has a story in there that takes place in um, you know World War II Germany, and 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 in that story, um, the Nazis are using zombies as uh, weapons. So you know, I mean, there's all kinds of different uh, takes that you know you can all, all sorts of different things you can do with a zombie. And um, I mean, I think we we haven't seen we haven't seen the last of uh, new and unusual things done with them. So if people want to find out more about the Living Dead too, where should they go? Uh, yeah, so you should go to johnjosephadams.com and uh, visit the website for The Living Dead 2 um, that we have set up. And uh, I'm sure Tony will have a link in the show notes. Um, but on the website, you can read the introduction of the book. You can see all the fabulous reviews we've gotten. Um, you can read eight free stories in their entirety, um, either just on the website or you can download it in this um, you know, EPUB or PDF sampler um, and put it on your iPhone or your you know, Kindle or whatever. There's also going to be 36 different interviews with uh, the various contributors to the anthology. There's actually 40, 44 stories in the book overall, and 36 of those um, people uh, gave interviews talking about their stories, telling you about the inspiration for it, and uh, you know all that kind of stuff. So um, if you go check out the website, you can find out more, and uh, you know tell your friends uh, and anybody who's on the fence about buying whether they should buy it or not. Uh, you know, there's plenty there to help you decide. 
So are there going to be any launch events? Uh, yeah, actually, we just uh, booked a, a launch event in New York. Uh, so anybody um, in the New York area, you want to check out uh, on October 6th, there's going to be a, 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 zombie, a zombie panel of experts uh, at, at the McNally, McNally Jackson Bookstore. It's uh, down on Lafayette and Prince Street and um, 7 p.m. October 6th. Uh, we'll, uh, David Bar Kirtley and I will both be there. Uh, the rest of the panel is to be determined, but um, several other contributors uh, to the book are, live in the area, so um, we'll, we'll try to get as many of them on hand as possible, and uh, we'll talk about zombies all night. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we have that planned, and uh, you know, other events might uh, come up. Uh, if, if you want to check out, check out other events, uh, just be sure to check out the website, and uh, we'll be mentioning any events there. So uh, other than Living Dead 2, what other kind of zombie stuff has come out lately that people should check out? Uh, well, my favorite thing that's come out lately, I guess, has been Zombieland, um, you know, the movie, uh, which I thought was really great, you know, starring Woody Harrelson and uh, Jesse Eisenberg and re- directed by Ruben Fleischer. Um, you know, it was just a lot of fun. I thought it was like you know, one of the most uh, most entertaining zombie films that I've seen in, 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 well, in, in all of memory, really. I mean, I guess uh, one of the most entertaining zombie films of all time that I've seen. Uh, there's Quarantine, which uh, some people dispute as being a zombie movie, but I think it's a zombie movie. Um, but uh, it's really, really scary. I thought, I mean, I, I don't typically find uh, uh, movies all that scary in general, even the most horrific horror movies. But, I mean, this one I found actually pretty scary, uh, probably because it's sort of this uh, first-person viewpoint um, sort of deal where it's like, you know, the, the cameraman is a character in the movie, and so you see all everything sort of firsthand that way. Um, but I really enjoyed that. And it, it's based on a Spanish film called REC, like short for Record. Um, which is also actually quite good. I mean, Quarantine's almost a, a shot-for-shot remake, but there's there's a few slight changes. Um, but I mean, I think both are worth seeing. And then, uh, of course, in video games, there's Left 4 Dead and Left 4 Dead 2, um, which are both awesome. Um, Left 4 Dead 2 lets you hack apart zombies with a katana, so I enjoyed that. And in uh, the realm of books, uh, you know, I mentioned Feed by Mira Grant. That's a that's an excellent book. Um, I actually provided a little blurb for that. Um, uh, which you can see on her website. And another book I, I read an early copy of is called Spore by John Skip and Cody Goodfellow. John John and Cody have a story in The Living Dead too, and, and so they had this book coming out, and they asked me if I would take a look at it early, and so I did. And, and I mean, it's really great. It does a lot of inventive things. Um, I, I believe I called it a, 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 masterwork, a, a masterwork of 21st century zombie fiction. Um, unfortunately, it's not out yet, and uh, it's coming out from – or was coming out from Dorchester, and they've had some issues lately, so I'm not sure what the status is. But hopefully it will find a home soon, if not from there. Um, and then otherwise also Nightshade, uh, you know, Nightshade publishes The Living Dead 2 and they've also published two other zombie things lately. Uh, there's The Loving Dead by Amelia Beamer, which is sort of a zombie comedy romance, uh, sort of deal, um, featuring slackers who work at, uh, Trader Joe's, uh, and how they survive the zombie apocalypse. And, um, there's The Zombies of Lake Wobegotten by, uh, Harrison Dealer, um, which, as you might guess, is a is is a is a pseudonym for um, you know, and uh, parody. The book is parodying um, you know Garrison Keillor's uh, writing. Um, so if you're familiar with that, you might enjoy it. And if you're not, then I think you might enjoy it anyway because it's just uh, a lot of fun. Um, and then otherwise, there's the there's the Forest of Hands and Teeth by Carrie Ryan, another contributor. But uh, you know, I mean, this is the reason that I, I I'm mentioning all these contributors is because well, that's why I invited them to write stories. Because like I knew they had these these cool new zombie books out, and so I wanted them to be part of the book. Um, and there's also you know Patient Zero by Jonathan Mayberry. I think that's a really good take um, on zombies. And and actually the the that, the his story in Living Dead Two is set in the same milieu. Um, and uh, I don't know. I could keep going on and on, but um, you know Dead City by Joe McKinney. There's Breathers by S. G. Brown. So um, a lot of, a lot of a lot of good stuff. Um, 
actually, one of the other things you could do on the website is you can read all the header notes um, to each of the stories. And so, actually, if you browse through there, um, you'll find a bunch of other zombie recommendations as well, just because so many of the authors in the book have written other zombie things. And uh, the header notes uh, are sure to point all that stuff out. Uh, as I said in the introduction to the book, I mean, I expect if you wanted to spend all your time only you know, consuming zombie entertainment, whether it be in video games or movies or, or reading, um, you know, you probably wouldn't have that much trouble. Um, so it's a, it's a, we're living in a zombie golden age right now. So enjoy it. John David, thank you so much. I'll put a link on to John's site so you can go over and get yourself that copy of Living Dead 2. John, thank you so much. David, you're a star. Thank you. That is, wow, that is Oral Delights show 153, the Hugo winning podcast Starship Sofa. <laughs> Please, if you haven't seen that video, check out that video. It is around the 41 minute mark where things get a little bit excited. Mm-hmm, I certainly do. Can I just say, honestly, a big thank you to everyone who's over the years who've helped starship so far do you know what i mean come from this kind of little little show there into this bloody hell hugo winning show wow do you know what i mean everyone you're amazing people and athletes thank you so much will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal can they win through with their integrity unscathed can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a badly recent procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, 